Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a vision for a beloved community, a global family marked by equality, justice, and brotherly fellowship. This is a much more demanding vision than mere coexistence or even what we sometimes call reconciliation in the church. The beloved community demands sacrifice and dismantling inequitable systems and giving voice to the marginalized. In this series, From Redeemer City to City, we're talking with pastors and Christian leaders who have experienced building beloved community in and through the local church. We hope these conversations expand your imagination for what holistic ministry can look like in your city. And if you like what you hear, you can find more from these contributors and many others at RedeemerCityToCity.com slash resources. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I'm speaking with Ren Cabente, who is pastor and uh, planter of Uptown Community Church in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan. He's also the Manhattan Catalyst for Redeemer City to City, and he explains exactly what that means in our conversation here. Ren and I talk about how church-led protests in New York City have been a formative experience for discipleship, uh, both for himself and also for his congregation. It's a really great uh, conversation about how things that are happening out in the world can be used for discipleship, evangelism, worship, etc. And um, I think it's really instructive for all of us. Ren also talks a little bit about the ways uh, he hopes to see lasting change in the ecosystem of churches here in New York City. Thanks for listening. Uh, Welcome, Ren. Thanks so much for being with us on the podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Ren, you and I work in adjacency to each other uh, at City to City, and um, much less adjacency now uh, because we've been working remotely for three months. Um, But we also are sort of we're in the same neck of the woods here in Manhattan. Um, yeah, not, you not live too in, far from each other. So we have some uh, adjacency now and adjacency at City to City. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, your work at City to City and your um, uh, uptown community church uh, where you're a pastor. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm at City to City. I'm on the New York team, and it's uh, in a role that's called the Manhattan Catalyst which uh, for our church planting ecosystem means that I um, keep relationships warm with church planters and networks and anybody who might be interested in church planting specifically in Manhattan. Um, like everybody at City to City, I get drawn into other things. Um, so, but my main role is, is recruiting, uh, relationship building. Uh, we do an event three times a year called the Manhattan Pastors Gathering. Um, and there's some consulting and training that is involved with that, but that's, that's at city to city. Uh, and then, uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm the senior pastor at Uptown Community Church. Uh, we planted about 12 years ago in our neighborhood. And, uh, it's, it's, as you know, it's, it's a neighborhood that's the Northern two most neighborhoods in Manhattan, Washington Heights and Inwood. Uh, and it's primarily flavored by, um, Dominican and Jewish populations, mostly Dominican. So, you know, you can get a cafe con leche and a Starbucks in our neighborhood because there's also a gentrifying um, influence up here. But really, it is it is a neighborhood that is um, driven by immigrant families. Um, you know, Manny Ramirez and Henry Kissinger went to our local high school, George Washington High School. Uh, neither of them graduated um, for different reasons, but you can you can 
sort of get a flavor of the neighborhood from there. And uh, our church is connected to the land here. We're in these neighborhoods. Most of our folks can walk to our church. I'm ethnically Japanese Filipino. And so one question, you can't see that on a podcast, but um, a question that some people ask about our church is what in the world are you doing trying to plant in a neighborhood like that? Um, but part of our, part of our DNA has been um, the, this really wonderful experiment of how does the gospel enable us to love across cultures hmm. and boundaries that exist in the rest of society and could, could, a gospel community be a model house for the rest of the neighborhood who you know we're all struggling with how to get along yeah. with one another and the recent events have have highlighted that but that's 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 been there since Babel yeah. and before yeah. so that's that's part of our effort to varying degrees of success of course but uh, we're definitely working on it we had Al Santino on the podcast um, not long ago, Al is uh, a dear man who does incredible work. And um, I know he uh, is, uh, he attends Uptown Community Church. Yeah, um, he's, our, he's our neighborhood renewal coordinator. Neighborhood renewal coordinator, good. We talked to uh, Al uh, recently on the podcast. He told us a bit about community engagement. And um, my son and I met him at a lot um, right near you. It's, a str- it's hard to describe for podcast purposes but it's essentially like space beneath several buildings which are on stilts and there's this um uh you know there's this dead space beneath and there was toxic runoff and there's all kinds of trash and there's all that and it had been a couple of months because of the uh stay-at-home orders since people had been out to clean and so my son and I went and met him there he said something really interesting as we're cleaning up and he he was pointing to the kinds of trash that you find, you know, syringes and all kinds of stuff, uh, pregnancy tests and mattresses and all kinds of stuff in this space. Oh, yeah. And he said, uh, he said, you know, all the dysfunctions of the neighborhood find their way into these spaces in the city. And I thought that was just a really powerful statement and kind of had that mental image now of those little quiet spaces that you kind of walk by in the city, accumulating the dysfunctions of a neighborhood or whatever. And um, so I know you guys are active in your neighborhood with uh, community engagement, things through Viva Uptown and other things. And um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that and how that functions more broadly in the kind of discipleship and programming of your church. Sure, sure. Um, you know, so, so we're, we're a small church and uh, two years into our church plant, um, you know, doing some thinking about being a church in the neighborhood for the neighborhood and finding spaces like Fairview. Avenue, which for 30 years, nothing has been happening. Um, it's been, it was collecting all of that and nobody was doing anything about it. And there's spaces like that, as you just described, all over the neighborhood, not just physical spaces, but social spaces as well. And so um, wanting, you know, that, that, that the gospel has impact, not only renewing individual lives, sort of saving them into over a line into heaven and bringing them into the church, but it has its effect on institutions. It has its effect on the whole city. Um, and that's part of the vision. But we realize as a small church, in order to really change a neighborhood, um, there's a huge range of activities that you have to be involved in. So for this, for this, on the small side, just being a, a friendly neighbor as opposed to a consumer neighbor or even 
stuff like in the early days, we used to do these things called cash mobs, where we would take uh, our whole church and just go to a local business that might have been struggling and just try to buy it out. But on the other side, there's things like advocacy. There's things like systemic change. Um, uh, and that takes a lot more energy. It takes a lot more expertise, a lot more money. And so we felt the need to have an organization that could build capacity for all churches. At, the, at that same time, there are about four or five other churches in the neighborhood, which were small with big visions. And there were church plants as well, trying to solve the same pro- problem. And so the first step, I think, was to get all the pastors together and to pray together, uh, love the neighborhood together. And out of that came um, ambitions to do something. We can't just pray about it. Why don't we do something? Out of that, I mean, this is over a span of maybe two years. Uh, Somehow we got to the goal. I think it was Rich Perez at uh, Christ Crucified Fellowship who came up with a goal of one mentor, adult mentor for every child in the neighborhood because youth development's as you know, a big issue in our neighborhood. And so out of that, we began uh, what we call Pathways, our mentoring program in partnership with a a local school. So we've started that program, but we realized, oh man, we can, we can, we can actually cooperate. (laughs) And we go for some of these bigger goals. And alongside of that Pathways program was built Viva Uptown, which it's, it's intent is to be this collective of churches that help build capacity for churches to work for the flourishing of our neighborhood. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of relational capital um, that went into building that. And and I think part of our job at Uptown was really seconding Al to be a major leader in that effort because he he is an incredible relationship builder. He's an, uh, he'd rather be on the streets than in a classroom teaching theology. Uh, he is just, he's just amazing. So, um, so he's built a lot of our relationship that, that makes that possible, but it's really an organization that is meant to be with other churches, building capacity for the church in our neighborhood. It, it strikes me that your work as a catalyst, is kind of highly relational activity with city to city. There are elements of that that are involved in the kind of collective building that you've described with Viva Uptown um, and kind of working together with other neighborhood um, pastors and churches in order to bring about change that's bigger than any one small congregation in the city. Most of the congregations in the city are small by maybe the standards of the churches that are celebrated outside of, uh, you know, places like New York city. Um, but that, uh, yeah, together you can do a whole lot more than you can do apart. And, um, I know that you've been involved, uh, recently there's, there's a, a number of church initiated um, protest organizations in New York city. And uh, I know you've been involved with some of those. And so this may feel like kind of a rough transition, but I think mentally it it connects with me (laughs) in, in the sense that your church already has this sort of strong kind of for the city, for the neighborhood um, impulse. You're already um, in the habit of building relationships with and, and, um, and striving together with, other churches to see change in the city. I'm curious how the the activity of organizations like um, there's Pray, March, Act, and uh, there's a couple others that um, have been, appears kind of moving through the boroughs in um, and gathering churches to demonstrate for justice uh, in the streets. And so I'd be really curious to hear your take on like how that um, 
for people other places, uh, maybe the idea of participating in a march or a protest doesn't feel like a churchy thing to do, right? That doesn't necessarily feel like something the local congregation would be um, automatically involved in. And so I, I'm curious if you can kind of connect for us how that kind of activity relates to the sort of community development work and stuff that you've uh, been doing and the relationships with other pastors and churches in the city to bring about change. Yeah, the, the, it may not be as much of a rough transition as you think, because I've just gotten out of a meeting, which was convened by a lot of those churches at Viva Uptown, where bus is just about to go public with um, an effort to do a march, do a protest march in our neighborhood Good. with these churches uh, in a couple of weeks. But, um, you know, I, I have been attending these, these protests, um, a couple of them in the Bronx and Brooklyn with Pray March Act, and then uh, Pastor Kenny Hart led one in Harlem, and there were others, but it's been an incredibly transformational experience for me. Um, and one moment I knew this was true was uh, at, the, at the Bronx March last week, when we were walking down Kingsbridge Avenue. Uh, there was a moment where I thought to myself, this is, this is the most proud I've ever been to be part of the church in probably 15 years. Wow that as a pastor who represents the church and sees the church saying things and doing things that, that make me ashamed to be a part of the church. We were walking down Kingsbridge Avenue led by our minority leaders, black and brown skinned leaders, um, chanting things like we are the church and we want justice. We, want, we are the church and we want change. Mm doing it in a peaceful way in the middle of the Bronx, <laughs> chanting, chanting. It was, it was restrained. It was part of that peaceful protest movement, but it was also part of the prophetic church movement that is saying, we're not going to allow this violence to black and brown bodies anymore. But the moment that really switched me was that uh, all of a sudden the chanting spontaneously turned into worship songs mm. praising god for who he was declaring that we were his people and it, it it had the effect of connecting me to some of what i have read about in the civil rights movement where they sang we shall overcome those kinds of th mm. these songs that were so full of sadness and lament but yet hope and raising your voice up and saying, no, 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 we belong to the one who's bringing justice. We belong to you, God. And somehow everybody in, in the entire march, everybody was from all over the city, tons of different ethnicities. Somehow everybody knew the songs that we were singing. Hmm. And if they, you know, if they didn't know the words, they were humming. I mean, it was just, we were walking united, the, the, the diverse church, the United Church, the Faithful Church, the Prophetic Church, it was all in that moment walking down. I was like, this is the church that I want to belong to. This is, this is the church that I recognize from the scripture. And the protest um, gave me an experience of that. You know, you, you imagine the church in the city and all of the things that the Bible requires of the church. And usually you're sitting in your room praying and you have to use your imagination to access that. But... I was having a, a, a tangible, physical, communal experience of that walking down Kingsbridge Avenue in the Bronx. It was amazing. 
Um, plus, plus the fact, you know, it's transformational for me, but, but plus the fact that it has these protests, you can give them credit in this moment for being a legitimate political accelerant or a societal accelerant that they're, they have, you know, fortune 500 companies are rethinking the way they're doing things. We're forcing uh, legislatures to push through laws um, demanding accountability for the violence against black bodies in a way that, uh, that, that wouldn't have happened ex except for the protest. So I think it's, it's a legit legitimate speech, at least in this time. I know there's a lot of research on whether or not protests are actually helpful or not. But in this moment, um, if people are looking for something to do, I think it actually works, especially when it's done in, in a distinctly Christian way. It's very, very powerful. And it strikes me the irony of something that you just said is that the united diverse church across the city is together and singing in one voice, you know, in the streets of the Bronx. I think it's very interesting. We often talk about multi, intentionally multi-ethnic ministry as being a, a vision of the end of Revelation, you know, where every tribe and tongue and people are worshiping before the throne. And I think we... I typically imagine that happening inside a building, you know, or in a, in the sort of worship space. And it's sort of ironic that, um, that where that happened is not where you had a very tangible experience of that vision was not inside a church building, but out in the city on a March with people from different denominational backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, you know, et cetera. Uh, I think it's, it's a really, it's a sort of inside out of the expectation, which is that those things should be happening in the church. And yet statistically they're not happening in the church, um, but they seem to be happening on the street uh, yeah. in, yeah, in those moments. Um, it also struck me that, you know, a lot of the pleas that you see in social media and other places, some of the frustration against these kinds of demonstrations is that they're divisive, right? That they're highlighting divisions but I think when, when you're on the ground, I, I went, I think it may have been the first uh, of these Pray March Act events in Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn a couple yeah. of weeks ago, yeah. and was very struck by the fact that this is, this is not a dividing moment, at least not for the people who are here. This is a unifying moment. Um, and so whatever it may look like on a screen somewhere else, uh, the, in, in this moment, there was a great sense of celebration of diverse, God's diversity and and also the unity in this cause, which was really powerful. Yeah, um, and it was it was actually really interesting, the Brooklyn March as well, because I know they originally thought it was going to be 300. And then the church really showed up, and it was over 2,000. Mm -hmm. It was so big that a lot of people couldn't hear the speakers at the front. But it was also so big that it was, it, 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 that number one, people around in Brooklyn were sort of looking at it and saying, like, wow, this is amazing. And they were mm -hmm. you know, taking pictures. of. But it was also so big enough that... It, it got the attention of some other groups and they actually joined the march and changed some of the chants mm. to things that might have that that were less christian mm. um but that experience and it was different in the bronx where it was a little bit clearer and i think also because it was a little bit smaller it was the chants were a little bit more controllable but what it highlighted for me is that that we really do, that as the church, we really do have a distinct voice that 
that is that is helpful and that is accepted by an awful lot of the folks outside the church. Mm. So when we walk mark down, like you know, like there, there's you know, you can go NWA FTP about it, <laughs> or you can say we are the church. We are you know, we want justice, we want peace, and we want change. And you can be just as prophetic, but in this restrained way, because we know we can give that job of justice to God. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's the foundation of nonviolent protest, et cetera. But that is, that is, a, that is a necessary voice uh, that I think is welcomed by an awful lot of society. And if you do it in the right way, um, you can get things done. You can, be, you can be accepted. It's a wonderful, you know, I think it was Michael Carrion in the Bronx afterwards was remarking to me, um, you know, the goal was sort of prophetic. Let's be prophetic. But he was realizing this is evangelistic. Mm-hmm as well that people in the society are closer to being christian than they think mm. and we're, we're just going out there and saying we're, we're doing more than they they're doing but we're doing it in a way that's more thoughtful and more productive to society and i think that's an opportunity well, yeah now this all comes at a really unique time because it's easy to forget that we're still in a pandemic <laughs> and that new york city has started to sort of open up but it's still very much uh uh, you know the movement is pretty limited, and uh, the you know, there are kind of new classes of. Uh, I guess we're in phase one, so there's kind of new classes of essential workers, construction workers, and other things. But churches still aren't meeting, and you know there's a lot of restaurants are still not uh, taking in inside diners and all that. So it's it's interesting that the first that March of Brooklyn was the first time I had seen people I knew in like three months. You know, yeah, so it was really great. <laughs> like wow, other other people that I'm not seeing on a screen. This is fantastic. Um, but it's interesting. It's odd that this is happening at a time when we're not gathering for worship, right? And so I, if there's something that seems significant in, in all of that to me as well, that, that really the only time I've been together with other Christians since March outside of my family has been in this very public space of, um, you know, this walk in Brooklyn. And then now they're making, I'm glad, very glad to hear that they're coming uh, potentially this way um, uptown. Um, I'm curious how as a pastor you're sort of leading through this because you don't have physical proximity with your congregation right now. And what, what does it look like to kind of integrate some of this activity with your discipleship at the local church level? Yeah. Um, uh, it, I think in some ways it's, it's difficult because obviously there's two pandemics going on that you have to deal with in your church. Um, if I were to be honest, it may, I, I think I sensed in my church that about the time that all of this protest activity came up, my church maybe was, was getting pretty sick of the endurance, sermons on endurance, uh, <laughs> the pandemic. And um, so maybe, may, I don't know. May, yeah, so the switch maybe was was you know, terrible circumstances, but maybe fresh air. But I, I think also, in some ways, the Zoom format um, helps people to be a little bit more focused in their discussions. I, I think we probably felt like we've had better conversations about these things, very difficult and hard conversations in the church, even though this is a value for us. What this has highlighted is that we have a long, long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that there's such a thing as superficial diversity and the amount of hurt that this has brought up varies deeply, obviously, depending on your skin color. 
-hmm. You're going to experience what's happening um, differently. So I, I, our discussions have been good, but like I've, you know, we, we have arranged, we have, we have some of our black congregants who are looking at my sermons and looking at my activity and our activity and protests grateful but hurting and with a little bit of side eye mm. as to whether or not this is going to last because that's the record of the church mm. um that we are what they call it the performative ally that our repentance and our activity lasts not as long as the suffering exists but as long as i feel guilty mm. and i do things to sort of make myself sort of feel better and then and then we have a certain per percentage of our, our white folks who are feeling really alienated by the sermons and asking questions about, you know, I'm, I am supposed to repent. You know, I, I wasn't the DA that refused to mm. prosecute Ahmaud Arbery. I didn't own slaves, those kinds of things. So there's a huge range and we realize that there's a, that's, I think, the challenge um, for a diverse community. Now, one resource that's been super helpful for me has been, um, Brenda Salter McNeil's book. Um, it's called Roadmap to Re Reconciliation. Um, and, you know, she has this, she has a process that she says she walks churches through. It looks linear, but it isn't necessarily. Um, you know, the first four stages, not, not to be teaching on your podcast, but <laughs> working ahead. this out Go from my it. own head. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, th there's, there's usually a catalyzing event that happens that mm. brings all this up. We certainly are in that mm -hmm. right now. Um, then the, the second stage is, is realization where the church you know, or, or a critical mass of people in the church realize that they need to repent mm. and that there's a problem. And the third, third stage is identification where people begin to be partners in pain, identify with each other's pain, and they start to realize that we can only overcome this as a group. Mm. And then the fourth stage, there's more stages after that, but she says uh, where, where churches start to fire her <laughs> because it gets <laughs> too difficult is in what's called the preparation stage, which is really where they need to start planning mm. for how they're going to combat this. And they realize that all the things that they have to give up, mm. They start having to count the cost. They start realizing the changes that they're making have to be permanent. And so my, my point is, when, when in my church, the way I'm thinking about it is that we have so many people along on the map of what their experience is, that that process that we just described, it, it, it's not linear. Mm. It's happening sort of in circles. And I think she deals with this in the book. But what the protests have done for us is provided an entry point for discipleship no matter where you are. It, it's a catalyzing event. It's helping people to realize that they need to repent because they go to these marches, they're kind of scared, but then they hear biblical protest speeches mm -hmm. and they hear stories about real pain and they come to a realization or they identify or participate or, or, or prepare. And they, you know, they hear all of these things. One of our members who was white um, gave a sermon reacting to the events, made an invitation to come to a vigil in our neighborhood. He went to the vigil, but he left early because he was with his kids and he got a little scared. Mm. Some of the language got strong. 
um, or or he was just afraid at what might happen. There were police there, and it spooked him, and he went away. And he he uh, went home and thought about it. And then he came into one of our small groups, and in community, they started to discuss hmm. why did you leave? What happened there? What does the Bible say? Hmm. If if God convicted you to go, why did you leave? Hmm. And so he was convicted. And he worked it out in community. Mm-hmm. He prayed about it. And the next day we went to another, we had, we made an opportunity to go to another protest and he went as a, mm-hmm. as a way of repentance, as a way of standing up for his black brothers and sisters. He was developed. What was that? Was that a catalyzing event? Was that realization? Was <laughs> identification? So these protests, I think have provided uh, a discipleship piece mm-hmm. um, that, you know, and, and also folks who have side eye or folks that are uh, performative allies, it gave them something to do mm-hmm. in response in such a way that they didn't feel like it was just, yeah, it's just another protest because the protests are having their effect right now, I think. Mm-hmm. They, feel like they're, they feel like they're changing the world. Mm-hmm. So that's why it sort of operated. Now, the real challenge is longevity. Right is whether or not this is going to live in our bones and in our souls over the long haul when the rest of the world's protests die down, but the pain of people in our churches goes on Mm. Uh, or, or, you know, it's just, it's so long. And that, that was actually one of the things that was brought up in our community discussions. Um, One of our, one of our black members said, listen, this is essentially said, like, we don't trust you on this. (laughs) We're opening up in our fear because we're following God. We're waiting for the other shoe to drop, but we're trusting God. And this is a Jesus thing. We, we know you can't do this. And so we all have to trust God together. So in, in discipleship, like the, yeah, the protests have just been a way of entering into those transformative experiences that you can bring now into the, the mirror of scripture and really get an assessment of where you are in your walk with Christ. So, They've been very, very helpful, which is why, you know, now we're, we're buying into organizing a protest in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a, a really helpful perspective. I, I think it, it's interesting and instructive to, to think about the things that are happening in the world. Um, and you've touched on this in a couple of ways. One was, you know, Mike Carrion mentioning that this is... Um, you know, it's not just a prophetic moment. It's also an evangelistic moment and thinking it's not just an, an opportunity to uh, stand with um, other churches or with black and brown brothers and sisters, but also it's a discipleship moment. And I think it takes a certain amount of sensitivity to the spirit um, and, and maybe creativity to recognize that, uh, that these, that all of that sort of formative activity doesn't, just happen inside the church, right? It's happening out in the world and we're invited to join it. And in the process of joining it and accepting it as an opportunity for evangelism or prophetic proclamation or discipleship, it, it can be those things. Um, and, uh, but, it, but you could also be resistant to it and miss it. Um, and so there's a really interesting opportunity there. I, I, I appreciate the way you've articulated that. Yeah, and I think it's definitely a new skill for me um, because I'm in a denomination where you solve everything by teaching mm. that how do you solve racism? Well, let's have a class mm. on how not to be racist, but then 
because you think, because you know it, you think you've done it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think there's been a trend, you know, that's why it's helpful for me is that you, it really, there needs, you need to find opportunities to have transformational experiences to really shine a light on, on where you lack and where you need to repent and take shelter under Christ for your responsibility for killing, you know, our black brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. like to sit with that. Um, Teaching doesn't do that in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I'm grateful for these opportunities. Yeah. So that's a new skill. Just how do we create and find those experiences yeah. to fail? Yeah. Well, and it strikes me that Jesus actually, with his closest disciples, sort of operated in the sequence was more often or as often a formative experience and then some sort of a teaching debrief, right? Like, come with me to dinner at this tax collector's house without much explanation. And then after the fact, we'll talk about why we just did that. Right. Uh, Which is a very, it's a very uncomfortable process. Um, And so there is a teaching element, but it's the, that formative experience does make someone available uh, or receptive to the teaching and provides a new kind of category for receiving it. Um, Maybe what I'm trying to say is that this moment presents us with a lot of, opportunity um it is easy to politicize it's easy to entrench it's easy to say you know those people who are out there protesting in that way uh you know are ignoring the lord's work or whatever or the thought that i keep having is there's a lot of frustration about the fact that people are not allowed to gather for worship and yet they seem to be allowed to gather to protest and I just can't shake the feeling, yes, but what if the protest is an act of worship? <laughs> and what, yeah. if it, what if it's an act of discipleship and evangelism and prophetic proclamation? Then it's, it's all the better, right, that it's happening in the streets of our neighborhoods rather than inside the walls of our churches. Yeah, um, yeah. Big lesson, big lesson. And, you know, and, and we're, we are fortunate. Like, New York has done a great job mm-hmm. comparatively um, at you know, I think the governor said we have the lowest spread rate now of any state in the country, mm-hmm. which is crazy because <laughs> we were we were number one in the world. At, yeah, at we've come a long way. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, it's kind of, but but I mean, it is you know maybe it's providential. I think that that these protest moments are coming in the summer where the viruses like these don't do as well, and it came when our work curve was down. Mm-hmm. Um, we shall see what the effect is. But, you know, like I, I uh, my, the calculus in my head is, you know, that, that we're, we're pursuing the sixth commandment, like thou shalt not kill. Mm. We really are. Even, even we're all wearing masks. The, all of these protests are very, very responsible in terms of guidelines. Mm-hmm. And they're spelled out. And those who aren't wearing masks are not allowed. I'm sure it's close corners, but the, uh, but the risk and faithfulness sort of paradigm is, I think the calculus is right. The people mm-hmm. are dying. Yeah. And it's worth getting out there. Um, yeah. yeah. So. This has been really helpful. I, I appreciate your perspective on this. And I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I think your role and as a pastor of a local church, church planter, pastor of a local church, and also as a catalyst who's, actively creating relationships around the city, you know, that helps um, to, to kind of present this in a very particular light. But I, I wonder maybe if I can ask a final question with your catalyst hat on, um, what, what do you see this 
activity of protest and marching together doing for the broader ecosystem of pastors and um, denominations and, and, and all the work that's been going on for a long time to catalyze and unify the, the body of Christ in New York City. Um, what do you see as the impact maybe of this activity on that effort long term? Yeah, I, I think I'm grateful for it because it's doing a lot of the a lot of my job. Hmm. Um, church planting requires an ecosystem of relationships and sharing of resources and mutual help and insight. And this it, it's it's providing these protests. This effort is providing um, ministry opportunities in which everybody from all kinds of denominations, from all kinds of backgrounds are actually working together. Um, at least in, in me, it's creating an appetite for more of that. And it's uh, oftentimes it's hard to imagine. You know, we, we try to do that at city to city through having meetings. Or if you have a charismatic, very uh, high value teacher like Tim, that can kind of galvanize people together. But we're all trying to so solve the problem. How do, we, how do we be together? How do we work together in the most productive way possible? And I think these protests are, are giving us that opportunity. Um, and hopefully it give people an appetite for that going forward. Um, it certainly is giving us more skills and it will give us a vision. So the next time you pitch something like this, uh, people will buy in a little bit more easy. Mm -hmm. Buy in easier. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I'm going to sit with that one for a while. You know, the, the protests, I think, are born out of relationships. How else can you get 2,000 people to Brooklyn? Right. I live in Washington Heights. I never go to Brooklyn. <laughs> no, it was That's a like trick. <laughs> Even when I lived farther downtown, I never went to Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. I loved it, but never went there. <laughs> but I went because of relationships, and, and, and there have to be new relations, new trusts, literally new trusts that are growing up because there's an Asian church in Midtown that's showing up to support a black church in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. There's going to be white churches um, from downtown that are going to come uptown to our march and support the Latino community. I mean, that, that, that's trust building. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully it can translate to church planting as well. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I, I've really thoroughly enjoyed uh, this conversation. Both yeah, Me too. This is a good conversation. Yeah, a good conversation. Any, 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 anytime someone listens to me, <laughs> you like I'm that, huh? happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's at hilarious. At least you're faking it well, so thank you. <laughs> well, for both of our sanity, maybe we should make this a weekly occurrence so that one of, <laughs> both of us get listened to at least once a week. <laughs> that would be great. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing you um, maybe out uh, in uh, Uptown soon in uh, one of these demonstrations. That would be fantastic. For sure. For so, sure. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Brian.